0: We are continuing in our series in the book of Philippians. And so if you're watching online, you can pull it up. LifeChurchFHMH.com or the Facebook page. You can bring it up if you're here. You already have it printed out. It's nearby. And uh, we want to encourage you to um, uh, fill in the blanks. If you need a Bible, we've got Bibles on the back table in the corner. Uh, We believe... The Bible is relevant for the days that we're living in, and um, and so there we have it. A pastor and his wife were taking a few days away from their schedule, and they rented a a, uh, a condo for four days, just uh, for a quick breakaway. And um, they had to be out of the condo on that fourth day by 10 o'clock in the morning. And before checkout, the renters were always asked to do a few things like strip the um, sheets off the bed, put the towels away in the hallway, uh, take the trash out, load and start the dishwasher. And the pastor uh, raised his hand and said, I'll take care of the dishwasher. You know, Uh, and about 10.05 in the morning, a couple of uh, women and a man walked into the condo. They spotted the pastor and said, hey, we're here to clean, and you're supposed to be out of here by 10 o'clock. And um, the pastor apologized and thanked him for coming and said, we're heading towards the door. And he grabbed his stuff, and he, he made his way down from the third-floor condo to their car. Just before they, they reached their car, um, the guy who was cleaning came out on the balcony and he yelled down to the pastor, Hey, thanks a lot for starting the dishwasher. There's only a few things you're asked to do, and you couldn't bring yourself to push the button? And, of course, he said some other choice words that we won't talk about at this time. But anyway, you kind of get the idea. And the pastor, during those four days, had been working on his upcoming sermon, you know, on representing Christ well. And... Um, um, you know, that we don't have to let circumstances of life kind of beat us up. And so, anyway, um, did he respond in a Christ like manner? We, we could take a vote and we could guess, but uh, he did not. He yelled back at the dude up on the balcony and he said, I'm sorry, you had to push that button. I'm sure that it had to be exhausting. And, uh, and then he laughed in kind of a haughty way, which started uh, a little battle going on. So the man yelled back at the pastor with some more choice words, and the pastor yelled back at the dude on the balcony. And finally, the guy in the balcony stormed off, went back into the condo, and he was still yelling in the process. And so and the pastor finally, his wife had already gotten in the car, and he got in the car and slammed the door shut. And um, what he should have done was let it go, right? It was one of those it-doesn't-matter moments. But for him, it did matter. Uh, He should have put the car in drive and just kind of laughed it off and gone on home. But that's not what happened. He sat in his car steaming. I mean, he was ticked, and his blood pressure had skyrocketed, and his wife looked at him and said, Honey, just let it go, you know? It really doesn't matter. Instead, the pastor got out of his car, and before he could shut the door, he heard his wife say to him, Say a quick prayer on your way up. (laughs) He started up those three flights of stairs, and um, He was going to confront, you know, Mr. Can't push the button on the dishwasher in the condo, but has plenty of energy to yell at me from the third floor balcony guy, you know. So as he's going up, he's, you know, working through his little speech. But after he got to the first uh, flight of stairs, he kind of felt convicted and embarrassed about the whole thing. And um, by the time he got to the second floor, he was telling God he was sorry. And. It was almost immediately impressed on him that he needed to apologize to this man, just kind of losing it. Uh, He looked in his wallet, and um, he had a $100 bill hidden in the wallet for emergency moments, you know, and he realized that was kind of an emergency moment, figured he'd give it to the guy to try and patch things up in the process. So he walked into the condo, and as soon as the man saw the pastor, he started yelling at him again. And, you know, the pastor said, Man, I could hear that voice in my head thinking, you know, boy, I don't need to take this. But, um, but even though he didn't feel like it, he apologized to the man. He said, I'm sure it's frustrating to come in and clean up after someone who doesn't do the little things. I'm sorry. I want to give this to you for the extra work um, you've got to do and as a way to say thank you for for everything. The man took the money, and almost immediately his eyes began to well up with tears. And he said, you know, I wasn't expecting that, and he began to apologize. And two men stood in the condo shaking hands and apologizing to each other. What a moment, huh? It was like a Hallmark moment. <laughs> yeah. After that, the pastor started walking down the stairs and um, not really feeling proud of what he had done, but really brokenhearted, you know, for those minutes that he slid into the abyss of his pride superseding his humility. And he asked God to forgive him. He got back to the car, climbed in, shut the door. His wife asked what happened, and he told her the whole story, and she patted him on the back, and with a smile, she said, Oh, it's so cute. You're growing up. <laughs> 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 uh, friends, we all could use that word of encouragement, can't we? At times when our pride gets in the way. And uh, this morning, Apostle Paul's continuing his letter to the church at Philippi, and he's reminding them as well. Yeah, life can get tough at times. We, our pride could be stepped on, but uh, we have a model that we can use to uh, reflect on how we live our lives and process those irritations that may come our way. So let's go to the book of Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up uh, it says verse 5 in your outline, but I just want to back up um, to verse 3 because this is where Paul is is coming off of. Um, it says, uh, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And here we begin, Verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Notice that word must. It's a key word. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity we have to have a Bible, to read it, and to apply it to our lives. And we ask that your spirit will help us do that today in a very practical way. And we recognize, Lord, we can identify with that pastor who uh, struggled when his pride was stepped on. And we realize that um, we battle that really daily. And we need your help to model you well. We, we can't do this on our own, Lord. Our, our human nature, our old nature likes to come back to life. And and so will you, will you help us today, Lord, to be honest with ourselves, transparent with you in those areas that maybe we need to allow you to work to help us grow up in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. This is a transitional point in Paul's letter. Jesus, of course, is the perfect example that we can have as we live our lives, and he's been pleading with the church at Philippi and uh, brings up Jesus once again as our model, somebody that we can look up to and say, I want, I want to be like Christ. That's my, that's my goal in life. So number one in your notes, a must-have. <clears throat> this is a must-have, verse 5. And, and what is that? Paul answers it for us. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. A must-have for all followers of Jesus Christ is something that we can't pick and choose. Um... I read an article recently of a, of a person who was about 18 years old, and they were getting involved in a career that paid well. And it was out of the country, and when they opened up their suitcase, they found a Bible that unknowingly um, her mother had placed in the suitcase. And, uh, and so she started reading it. And it wasn't until she was 40 years old that she finally read the Bible through, but stated the fact that uh, in those early years, uh, she would pick and choose what she agreed with and would adhere to with her life. And friends, quite honestly, we have a problem in America with in Christianity today, it's it's quite a dilute, it's diluted from the original intent that when God gave us his word, he, he gave it to us to obey it implicitly because partial obedience is disobedience. You know, for some reason, we rationalize how we can uh, pick and choose what we agree with and don't agree with, you know, with our culture, whatever the case may be. And, and so Paul is really drilling down in 2021 for all of us that, friends, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, he says you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. It has to happen. And so Paul is giving us a clear example and, you know... <laughs> Uh, people kind of go, they lean into feelings, you know. Millennials especially, I'm not picking on them. I am, actually. <laughs> Millennials have become very touchy-feely, um, more so than previous generations. And and they base their life on how they're feeling and, and how they've been treated, et cetera. And so, really, if you're a millennial here today, I, I just encourage you, man... <laughs> Let God change you today. Yep. And, and I'll be honest, he needs to change me. So we're all in the same camp. You know, it's not we're dividing and conquering. No, we all need God to work. But um, millennials tend to say, you know, I can't control my moods or my attitudes. Well, what you're doing basically is signing off and saying God's not big enough to help. You know, you're diminishing the power of Christ you cannot allow your moods and attitudes to dictate how you're going to run your life. And that's why Paul comes back and he says, you must have the same attitude. And so if you struggle with, you know, emotional swings and mood swings, etc., then you need to put that on the table before the Lord and say, Lord, I need your help here, you know? And that's the cool thing about God. He's very practical in those areas that we struggle with. Instead of just saying, I'll deal with that some other time, put it on the table, confess it really as sin to the Lord and say, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. And that's, again, kind of the direction that Paul's going through here. Paul is saying, I don't accept the fact that believers are slaves to their attitudes. It shouldn't be. Christ had this attitude of, um, well, we're going to see it in just a moment, and Paul says, so must we. Colossians 3:10. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like God. You catch that? Become like God. Put it on. Put that new nature on. Be renewed. That's part of the renewing of your mind. That's an ongoing process. To know your creator, and we hit that pretty heavy last week about the love of God, getting to know him, know your creator, how much he loves you. And our response is, I love you, God, and I'm not going to live my life in a selfish manner. I'm going to represent you well by the grace of God. And become like him. Become like him. Lord, help us to become like you. President Ulysses Grant was once on his way to re- a reception in his honor, and that was before TV days. I don't know if you know your history. <laughs> no cable news back then, man. They didn't have drones flying around with cameras on them either. Uh, you know, no social media back then either, so, so you know, facial recognition, um, it wasn't always up in front in that culture. And so he was caught, Grant was caught in a rain shower, and he ended up sharing an umbrella with a stranger that he had never met, who also was going to the reception to honor Grant. And the stranger said to Grant, I have never seen President Grant. I merely am going to satisfy a a personal curiosity between you and me talking to Grant. I have always thought that Grant was a very much overrated man. And Grant responded, that's my view also. <laughs> that's, that's a healthy way to respond, isn't it? It is. It is. Going back to verses 3 and 4 in this chapter, you know, we shouldn't really think higher of ourselves than we should. So, That should characterize every Christian, thinking less of ourselves and more of Christ. That is the essence of humility. A little dialogue went on in Mark chapter 10. Uh, In the Gospels, Jesus' own disciples are kind of having this, you know, hey, Jesus, when um, we get to heaven, I'd like to, to, can you put us on the right, and right next to the throne and... Jesus says, man, do you know what you're asking? In verse 41, then the other 10 disciples, how, they heard about this conversation that James and John were having with Jesus. And they said, man, that's not fair. Yeah, we want to be next to Jesus too. And they became indignant. So Jesus called the whole team together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. Just a footnote here, anytime a culture pushes God out of it, the leaders became, become like dictators, but just like we just read here. The rulers of this world lorded over their people, see? The power goes to their head. That's why in the Old Testament, it was required of the kings to read the law daily to keep life in perspective, that all the blessings came from God. See, you stay out of God's word, you stay away from God's character, man. Human beings can go south in a hurry. And that's this is what Jesus is addressing here. Officials flaunt their authority over those under them. I think we've seen that even in America. Different states, cities, etc. But among you, it will be different. So that's you and me. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is having a quick teaching moment here. Guys, um, you may think being close to the top is where it's at. That's where you're going to be happy the most. He's saying no. If you you want to be a follower of Christ, follow after me, you need to serve. You need to take on that servant's role. And Jesus concludes that. He said, even I, I didn't come here to be served by you guys. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And we know even before he was going to be betrayed, he washed the feet of his disciples, a, a role of a servant. See? And so that's, that's kind of where we need to go. Chuck Swindoll put it this way. I'm like James and John, you know. I'm important. So he says, change me, Lord. Make me a man who asks of you and of others, what can I do for you? Right? It's a, good, it's a good attitude. And so a must-have. How's that working out for you? That attitude, that attitude. Christ has. Is is that evident in your life? Number two, cling free. Verse six, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Um, Take a look at how Jesus modeled his attitude. He he had these rights, but he didn't cling to those rights. Um, That word cling kind of stands out to me. And uh, it reminds me of uh, trapping a monkey in Africa. They have a way of doing that. And um, uh, that's, that's an example. And, and what's that look like? They, they cut out the inside of a coconut, you know, scoop it out. The hole is big enough for a monkey to put his hand in, but they, uh, they, they tie it to a tree. So when the monkey puts his hand in for the banana as long as he's clenching the banana, he can't get his hand out of the coconut. It's a very simple trap. And as human beings, we love to hang on to stuff, don't we? You know, this is mine. Children especially, you hear that in the, uh, throughout the house. You know, this is my toy, this is my doll. And everything, you know, it's just modeling what the parents and how they live. So, As long as Jesus would cling to his rights in heaven, he would not come to earth as a baby. He would not enter this world as the savior of the world to die for the sins of you and me, see? So instead of clinging to his rights, he let it go. He let it go so that he could be all that God wanted him to be, his father. And so let's, 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 what are you clinging to in your life right now? What, uh, if you could identify one thing that's keeping you from all in with God, what is that one thing that you're holding on to inside that coconut? Spirit of God is saying, let it go. Got to let it go. Let it go so you can cling to Christ. It's a good position to be in. So Paul begins stressing, he says, though he was God, um, the preexistence of Jesus as God. And um, before Jesus came to earth, he existed in God, in, in, as God in heaven. And we see it in John 1.1, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. Hebrews 1 6 and 8 echo that. And when he brought his supreme son into the world, God said, let all of God's angels worship him. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. So God the father calls his son God because he is God. And that's where Paul is saying, though he was God. So there's no debate whether he was God or not. No, he was God. And he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. So whatever you say about God, he, Jesus is God, totally God. And he didn't cling to those rights in heaven. You know, he kind of, he agreed to sign off. I'm letting go of this great place in heaven, this security I have in heaven. The angels worship me, you know, Heaven, a perfect environment, I'm going to let that all go and become vulnerable as a baby, born in Bethlehem. Be born in a stable. And my life will be at risk, really, until he is nailed to that cross. Number three, humbled, verse 7. Instead, this is what happened. He gave up his divine privileges. He let go. He didn't cling. He let it go. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. Doing what Jesus would do is tough. Haven't you noticed? That pastor found out, you know, in that condo. You know, we find that out pretty much every day. It's hard to put into practice and one mom found that to be true. She had been trying to teach her two boys this lesson, you know, doing what Jesus would do. And Kevin, the oldest, was five and Brian was three. And one Saturday morning, she's cooking pancakes for breakfast. And the two boys started arguing with each other about who was going to have the first pancake coming off the griddle. I want it, said Brian. No, Kevin, I want it. You know, so you that back and forth. Barrage. And so the mom thought, man, this is a perfect opportunity for a teaching moment, you know, and how Jesus would respond. And she said, boys, if Jesus were here, what would he do? And before they could answer, she said, I'll tell you what Jesus would do. He would say, I'm going to let my brother have the first pancake. And Kevin, the oldest, turned to Ryan, the youngest, and said, hey, Ryan, you be Jesus. Isn't it true? It's easier for somebody else to be Jesus, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's how you'd vote. I'd vote that too. And uh, Jesus took the humble position of a slave. Uh, He didn't just take the position as a human being, but he took the position of a slave. He made servanthood his mission statement. There's four things we can walk through here quickly in in this verse. Christ gave up his divine privileges. In the Greek, it literally says he emptied himself. Uh, To contemporize it, we could say he became a nobody. You know, the son of God, God himself became a nobody. Uh, He gave up those divine privileges. Two, he became a slave. He took a humble position of a slave. Notice that word position. It's a key word there. He didn't merely appear as a slave, but he took on that position as a slave. He put on being a slave without putting off being God all at the same time. I know that's hard to track, but he's God and he's able to do that. Third, he was born as a human being. He became fully man without ceasing to be fully God at the same time. So by all outward appearances, he he looked like a man, but he carried the attributes and the character of God with him all at the same time. And fourth, when he appeared in human form, so if you and I were alive during in that first century, we wouldn't have said there goes the son of God because he didn't look any different from anybody else. You know, there was no halo. There was no security team. You know, with all the angelic beings surrounding him, you know, in their fiery chariots. He, he just lived like we all lived. Years ago, Josh McDowell wrote the book, Uh, more than a carpenter. And of course, if you don't know his story, Josh was out to prove that Christianity is phony and Jesus wasn't who he said he was to be. But as he got into the research, he realized that Jesus was who he said to be. And Josh went on to become an apologist, um, supporting all the claims of Christianity and Jesus. And he wrote this, Jesus is always more than. He's more than a teacher, he's more than a healer, he's more than a miracle worker, more than a rabbi, more than Mary's son, and more than a man. He's God in human flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He was and is the God-man. He was as much God as God is God. He was as much man as man is man. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, he's all God, he's all man when you get to heaven, you can ask God about that. I will, because it's bigger than me. I, I can't fully understand it, but I know it's true. So, so we'll go on. Number four, he died for me, verse 8b, and died a criminal's death on a cross. Did Jesus know in heaven what he was signing up for? You know, not clinging to his position in heaven, letting it go. Yes he did. He was fully aware of the sacrifice that he would make on earth. Hebrews 12:2, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him he endured the cross disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. And Jesus knew and he saw the benefit of him coming to the earth. It says, because of the joy awaiting him, the joy awaiting him, that's what drove him to live his life in honor to the Father. You know, he didn't say, Oh, I don't want to go. I don't want to leave heaven. (laughs) I like it here. It's cozy. You know? yeah, I mean, can you imagine Jesus just kind of pouting and saying, I don't want to go. I don't want to do it. I don't want to go. Please don't make me go, Dad. You want me to go? I'm going to go. I'm ready. I'm ready, Father. Whenever you want this to happen, I'm good. I'm good with it. And And so... He accepted his coming among us and died willingly for you and for me. That's that is so cool. And once again, the crucifixion, brutal, brutal way to die. It was so barbaric that the Romans reserved it for the very worst of the criminals. In fact, no Roman citizen would be condemned to be crucified except by a direct order from Caesar himself. And the Jews, they saw it as man, the pit pit. Because in Deuteronomy 21, it said a curse is placed upon anybody who's hung on a tree. That's how they viewed it. And so we see that Jesus um, modeled humility well. Why did he do it? Because he was willing to shed his blood on the cross. What's the blood have to do with it? do with it let's walk through this yellow fever the vaccine coming out of Africa back in 1927 a man named a a West African native came down with yellow fever and like unlike so many others who died Abyssy did not he survived his system had conquered the disease and A Sibi's blood contained the antibodies which doctors used to develop the successful vaccine all the way back in 1927. Hmm. That vaccine has saved lives of untold numbers of people all around the world. And each dose of that vaccine can be traced back to a sibi's original blood sample. Think about that. One man's blood has literally saved the lives of millions of people. So in this mysterious way, we can understand that's exactly what the blood of Jesus did for us. His blood, his blood saves lives of untold millions of people when they put their faith and trust in him. His blood is perfect. It's a perfect vaccine against the disease called sin. It's perfect. First John 1, 7, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Aren't you glad for that? And we can minimize, you know, what's been done. But the Bible declares that you and I were guilty and we were to be sentenced to death because of sin. Around 1600 years ago, Augustine wrote in his book, Confessions, my sin was all the more incurable because I did not think of myself as a sinner. He was talking about before he put his faith in Christ. You see, we can rationalize we 're very good at that too. when we start comparing ourselves to other people. we think, man, that sin is worse than my sin. my sin is is a little sin, and I know God will overlook that i 'm a better person because i don't i didn 't do what that person did, and so we we compare and we rationalize how God will deal with us at some point. But we have to go back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve ate that fruit that was forbidden, one apple, let's call it one apple, and that was enough to get evicted out of the perfect environment of the Garden of Eden, one apple, because God said, don't eat that apple. Disobedience, one sin. And because of one sin came sickness, disease, Pain, suffering, isolation, rejection, and we can go on and on. One sin. So, if we're into this, I'm I'm a good person. You know, I, I don't sin as much as so and so. And well, one sin is enough to keep you out of heaven. And that's why Jesus had to come. That's when we have to realize, man, I need a Savior. My sin is horrific in the eyes of a holy God. And I need to identify that I am a sinner condemned to die and be eternally separated from a loving God and a holy God. So we see in the book of Romans, it it sets out the fact that Romans 3.23, everybody sinned. Everybody means everybody. And we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Everybody. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, or you could flip that and say the reward for sin is death, eternal separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we have been diagnosed with an incurable disease. But the vaccine is the blood of Jesus, and it cures us. It cleanses us from all sin. That's where when we think about the love of God and the grace of God, really, friend, there should be an explosion of gratitude to him for the price that he paid. And he continues to pay, extending his grace, forgiveness, as we live for him. And so um, we see that um, in Romans 5, Paul gives us that antidote of grace. He said, uh, verse 15, but there's a great difference between Adam's sin, that one sin, and God's gracious gift, for the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. As the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God. Isn't that cool? Being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. I, I kind of I, I land in, in this verse 17, um, this, this wonderful grace, gift of righteousness. <sighs> Boy, we could go off on that for a while. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin. What's God's plan for your life? He, his plan for your life is that you will triumph over sin. In other words, you will not be caught in that trap of sinning and confessing and sinning and confessing all your life. There, there's no victory in that. Uh, you, you walk with your head down because you don't experience victory. Jesus understands that. That's why he's given you the Holy Spirit to live inside you and empower you to say no to sin and temptation and yes, to holiness and righteousness. He wants you to walk in victory. And so I just want to encourage you, man. Lord, your word says, even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. And for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Lord, will you help me bring these life-controlling habits, these addictions that are controlling my life, this unforgiveness that I keep falling into? Lord, let's deal with that, you know, and he'll help. So... We can't minimize it, rationalize it, try to dismiss it. We're terminally ill, and we need a Savior to forgive us our sins, which he does, and he loves to do it. God's grace is greater than all our sin. There's a hymn, Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. I'm not going to sing it to you today. I know you're giving a sigh of relief there. But uh, the marvelous grace of our loving Lord Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's Mount, that's where Jesus was nailed to a cross, outpoured there where the blood of the Lamb was split. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. I tell you, man, it's overwhelming. His grace. And when you experience that kind of grace in your life, you extend it freely. Because God pours it in and you give it out. And he pours it in and you give it out. And you realize grace is greater than any sin. So we're grateful for that. He died a criminal's death on a cross. There's a prophetic psalm in Psalm 22: 6 and 7A, but it says, "But I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me." And those that live in tropical lands will tell you there's a big difference between a snake and a worm, especially if you attempt to strike them. And so this morning, let's take the test. Uh, a worm or snake. Where do we fall? Where do we lean? The snake rears up its, and hisses when you try to um, come after it. It's a picture of self, you know? It's kind of like the pastor up with the balcony dude, you know? I'm going to get back. I'm going to get even. My pride is hurt. It's a picture of self, but a worm offers no resistance. It allows you to do what you like. You kick it, squash it. It's a picture of brokenness, humility. You ever try... Up a snake and using it as bait <laughs> when you go fishing, huh? Uh, I think leeches kind of remind me of a snake. Uh, if you ever put a leech on a on a on a uh, hook, you know they're like, Arr! man, it's like, how do you get that thing on the hook? Because they squirm and they thin out and. To me, leeches would love to bite you. They'll get under your skin. Yes, they will. Worms, man, you just take a worm and you put it on the hook. You don't hear the worm say, help me, help me. No, they just willingly go on the hook because that's what they were designed for. <laughs> right? To catch fish. When you think about it, friends, we're to catch fish too, aren't we? Hmm? Yes, indeed. So are we snakes, you know, coiling up to strike? Or are we like a worm that's forfeited their rights? Um... And so Jesus says in this prophetic psalm, but I am a worm and not a man. When you look at how he responded when he was falsely accused and nailed to the cross, he was as a worm. He didn't retaliate. He laid his life down freely. And so he, he's basically saying, I model that and that technically all of us should become worms for Jesus. It's another club we could start here. You know, worms for Jesus. But here, here's the thing. There, there's a fine line where, uh, you know, I'm only a worm. You know, I'm only a worm. I'm a nobody. Listen now, you're a follower of Christ. You have worth and value. You've been adopted into His. That's where you've got to be secure about the fact I can be a worm. I'm good with that. I don't have to strike back because I'm secure in my relationship with Christ. Man, that's liberating. So, worms for Jesus. The whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus taught non-retaliation, love for your enemies, selfless giving. Let's say yes to that. Number five, his great name. Verse 9, therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. Jesus was welcomed back. Can you imagine the party they must have had in heaven when he went back to heaven? The angels, you know, worship. Man, we miss you up here. Woo, oh, it's good to have you back again. 33 years. Great, it's great. So they had a celebration, and God exalted Jesus to the top. He says it gave him the place of highest honor, highest honor. Jesus, so what happened? He, he left as the son of God. He came back as the son of God, but also the son of man. See? So when that elevation took place, he left as the son of God, but he came back as the son of God, but also the son of man. He became human to identify with you and me, say, And so that's what this is referring to. God said, man, this is so cool. This is so cool. You've got a great name, my son. <laughs> Which leads us to number six. Every knee bows, every tongue declares Jesus is Lord. Let's read that 10 and 11 and at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Jesus name means the Lord saves and that was his mission on earth. He came to save, to rescue us from sin to adopt us and put our name in the book of life but um, there's coming a day when all creation will physically bow before the Son of God and acknowledge his lordship. And it will include, it says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So that would include in heaven the angels and the saints. On earth would be those still living on earth. And under the earth would be the dead, the demons, Satan himself. Under the earth, the devil and his demonic forces, along with those who rejected the love of Christ. Uh, Harry Ironside pastored Moody Church in Chicago. Up until 1948 and he wrote this the lost will never be reconciled heaven and earth will eventually be filled with happy beings who have been redeemed to God by the precious blood of Christ but under the earth will be those who have their part in the outer darkness the lake of fire they flaunted Christ's authority on earth they will have to own it in hell they refuse to heed the call of grace and be reconciled to god in the day when they might have been saved so so what paul is saying here that nobody's going to be left out you know you you can't say i'm not going to go to that uh i don't want to go to that no no everybody will be involved in this process this bowing the knee is a picture of submitting to the lord this confessing declaring with your mouth the tongue means there's no other Lord but Jesus Christ. And this title given to Jesus relates to to you and to me because he is our Lord, our Lord. And uh, the Greek word there is kurios, which is used many times in the New Testament. It was also common during the Roman Empire, the basic meaning being absolute ruler, absolute ruler. And so to call Jesus Lord, and just track with me here for a moment, means that he is sovereign over the entire universe. And he has the right to have sovereign rule over you and me. Romans ten nine, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Notice that phrase, to to openly declare means more than just saying those words. It means to agree from your heart that you believe what you're saying. Jesus is Lord over my life. To understand that properly, you got to understand the Romans, how they lived in that vast empire. Their empire back in that day stretched from Europe to the Middle East across northern coast of Africa, which included a bunch of different religions and, and all different kinds of of core values and people. And the scholars back in the day said that there's mystery religions that were found in many parts of the empire. Each of the various religions had its own code of conduct, its own sacred scriptures its own pattern of worship, form of sacrifice, sacred rites, priesthood, and so on. Because these religions tended to keep people pacified, the Romans left them alone as much as possible, just to keep them happy. But there were two things that were required of these people that were being ruled by the Roman Empire. One, they had to pay their taxes to Rome. Number two... Everybody was required to say, Caesar is Lord. You pay your taxes and you say, Caesar is Lord, everything's cool. You can sign off and life will be good. For many in this Roman Empire, that was not a burden, but Christians, this is where the problem came. They refused to say, Caesar is Lord. Because how could they say Caesar is Lord when they committed to say Jesus is Lord? Or just say Caesar is Lord and everything's going to be okay. No, they they want to do that. They couldn't do that. That's why many were persecuted. They were slaughtered, crucified, burned at the stake, run through with a sword, thrown to wild animals in the Colosseums. This was a dividing line that Christians would not cross. Just say Caesar is Lord and everything's going to be a cool. Okay, nobody else has to know. They want to do it. Chuck Colson said of the first century, if you stood in public and cried out, Jesus is God, nobody would be upset. But if you shouted, Jesus is Lord, you would start a riot. Rome did not persecute Christians because they believed in the deity of Christ or that Jesus was the promised Messiah or that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. Rome didn't kill Christians because they said Jesus is the only way to be saved. No, when Christians declared that Jesus Christ is our Lord and there is no other, that was a direct attack on Caesar worship and thus punishable by death. That's why those Christians were martyred for their faith. That's why the lordship of Christ matters so much. To call Him Lord means we surrender all we have to Him and follow Him explicitly, whatever the cost. That's why Jesus said in Luke six forty six, "Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say?" You see that? Why Why do you call me Lord? And you're not obeying me. You're you're picking and choosing what, what you're in agreement with. And so Jesus is addressing that back in the day. And so we need, friends, to settle that in our lives. Is Jesus Lord? Does he have complete control over your life? Are you holding on to that banana in the coconut? So one day, Jesus' enemies will bow before him. And listen, when, when people say Jesus is Lord, that's not talking about universal salvation. It doesn't mean everybody alive saying that. No, it's a universal confession, and it's a big difference. So we have a choice right here, right now, that we can f- confess him, Jesus, I'm receiving you into my life. I believe you died for my sins on the cross. I'm putting all my trust and faith in you. Jesus, be Lord of my life. Or if you choose to wait, you will do it, along with everybody else that rejected Christ, to confess him as as Lord in shame and terror. And so you have time. You have time. Today is the day of salvation. Charles Templeton was part of a teaching team for Youth for Christ. And Billy Graham uh, was part of that team as well. They didn't say this about Billy Graham, but they said this about Charles Templeton, that he is the most gifted and talented young man in America for preaching. Well, five years later, after this announcement, Charles Templeton renounced his faith in Jesus Christ. Fifty years later, Lee Strobel, once again a man who was an atheist but put his faith in Christ after researching the claims of Jesus to find that they were true, asked Charles, What do you think of Christ now? He was writing his book, The Faith, The Case for Faith, and so he. Went to Charles Templeton, and Charles responded, Concerning Christ, he was the greatest human being who ever lived. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus Christ. And then unexpectedly, Templeton's voice began to crack, and tears welled up in his eyes, and then he said, I miss him. I miss him. Here's a man 50 years earlier saying, I want nothing to do with Christ. And 50 years later, he's saying, I miss him. And after saying that, he covered his face with his hands and he wept. Obvious that Jesus had made a significant impact in the life of Charles Templeton. Friends, here we are today. Paul is saying, hey, let's model Christ. And when you look at the price that Jesus paid for you and I to be forgiven, to be reconciled back to his father, what else can we do but to say, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. You're my master. I'm going to follow you. And you may be here today and you have been saying, I'll get to that later. I'm going to procrastinate. I want to live my life the way I want to right now. You have an opportunity right here today. Now, online, to say, Jesus, I believe you went to the cross. You didn't cling to your rights in heaven. You came to earth to take my place on a cross, to shed your blood so that my sins can be forgiven. I believe that. And so I thank you, Lord, for dying for me. Not only dying for me, but paying my sin debt in full. I don't know anything. It's paid in full. So thank you for forgiving me. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, I will live for you the rest of my life as Lord and master over my life. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name amen if we could take a thermometer today and i'm right now i'm just I, i'd like to challenge the followers of christ i'm sure in this room and those watching There's been some compromise in your faith walk. There's been some picking and choosing on what you're allowing Jesus to do in and through you. And some of you have been drifting for a while. You've been cruising in the wrong direction. And I want to challenge you today, it's time, friend, that you came home. You're all in. And you take that temp- your thermometer and you stick it in your soul and see where where's that temperature? Is that is it hot, or is it ice cold? Maybe it's lukewarm. It's got to be hot. That can only happen when we follow Christ, when we're all in. Stop playing around. I'm telling you, man. We are seeing in our culture things, things that we, foundations in our country that are being pushed to the side and falling apart. The development of the chip, all the technology is here for the sign of the beast, you know to be able to buy and sell. You can see things moving in that direction very quickly. If you don't have this, you can't buy. If you don't have this, you can't sell, friend. This is a day that we need to be all in for Jesus. Just like those early Christians who would say, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. It costs them their life. It may cost you your life one day. Jesus is Lord. Let him be Lord. So, Father, we pause. Because this is what's most important, Lord. Our relationship with you. That it's healthy, it's vibrant. We're honoring you and obeying your word, Lord. We're not withholding. We're not, and uh, we're not. We're not dealing with secret sin compartments in our life. No, we're, we're all in with you, God. And so today, we give you permission, Lord, to be all and in all, every part of our life.